0: Morning. Let's pray. Father, this morning we come to you uh, with thankful hearts. We thank you that um, you were able to bring Megan and the babies um, through a very hard and difficult situation and that they are safe and Strong and growing stronger. We pray that you would be with the Salsers this morning, and that you would continue to strengthen Megan and that you would cons- uh, continue to strengthen those uh, children, and that you'd bring them home soon. Thank you, Father, for all the ways that you have uh, provided in this church people who will step up and who will carry the, the leadership um, that we need. Um, And that will love and care for them and help them as they uh, work to figure out what life with twins is going to be like. Thank you for bringing the Abrams baby home this past week, and we thank you, Father, for the little babies growing in their mothers' wombs, uh, even now. Um, For the Shooties and the Cerises and the Phelps, we pray that you would bless them and that you would cause those children to grow strong and that you would help their parents to love them and lead them to you. Father, for those who are in difficult situations looking for homes or places to live, for the Joneses and the Lutterals, we pray that you would provide for them and that you'd give them wisdom. For all the sickness that's going around, we pray that you would heal the families of our church and the little ones. For those who are struggling financially, we pray that you would provide. Now, as we come to your word, we pray that you would feed our souls. We need to hear from you. We need your help. We need your power by the Holy Spirit. So please be with us. Give me wisdom and strength and power by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. Morning. True or false? uh, Over the past several years, we've all felt a threat to our freedoms as Americans. True. True. Especially as Christians living in America, right? We still live in a pretty blessed country. In Indiana, we're pretty insulated from a lot of things. I mean, the UFOs are flying over Alaska and Montana. Not here yet, right? We all know that the world hates us. We all know that the world hates our God. We all know that the world hates our guts. And we all care about freedom. This morning, we're going to be talking a lot about freedom because God cares about freedom too. But the kind of freedom he cares most about is less concerned with the tyranny of the government, which he is also concerned about, but more about the tyranny of sin in our lives and in our hearts. Uh, Let me say something right at the outset. You can be shackled, tied up, bound hand and foot, and thrown into a gulag, and still be free. And you can be free walking the streets of this country saying whatever you want and whatever you feel like, doing whatever you want, whatever you feel like, and still be a slave. The freedom to go on live television and demonic drag is not freedom, it's slavery. For us, though, we can't control what happens out there, right? Right? We can't control what's going to happen at the halftime show at the Super Bowl. We can't control what's going to happen with the ads on TV. We can't control what's happening in Washington, D.C. Our influence individually is very limited. So, what can we control if we can't control what's going on out there? What we can control by the power of God is what happens in here, what happens in our hearts, what we do with our lives how we love and care for our families, how we love and care for God's kingdom, this church, this community, the people we work with, our neighbors. That's what God's concerned for us about the most. And that's what today's passage is is about. God wants us to be free. God wants you to be free. Here's what he says. Picking up in the middle of Romans chapter six, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Here's what he's saying. At the end of the day, It does not matter what you think, and it does not matter how you feel. You are either a slave to sin, or you are a slave to righteousness. But you are a slave. You have a master. And it's not you. Freedom, real freedom, is not freedom to sin, but freedom from sin. And we live in a world that thinks freedom is freedom to sin, freedom to let loose, to remove God's law, to remove God's standards from our lives, to be free from God. We're wrong. That's not freedom. To be free from the rule of God is to be tyrannized by sin, by Satan, by ourselves, by the world. Nature hates a vacuum. So when we get rid of God's law and God's order, God's law and order is replaced by power-hungry tyrants who want to control us. Satan, our sin, the world. That's what history teaches us. That's the way the world works. That's the way our hearts work. So the kind of freedom that's preached at the Grammys or at halftime at the Super Bowl is just another path to slavery. There is no freedom outside of moral order. There is no freedom apart from Christ. The Western world has the freedoms it has had because the Western world has been shaped by God's word. For a brief time, we had a thing called Christendom. It, all took, it took all the kings of the world, all the despots, all the rulers, all the emperors, and said, listen, there is a king above you. His name is Jesus, and he has a law. And you are not above that law. You must submit to that law and govern by that law. And that's a big part of what happened. The kings of the world believed and obeyed. And were replaced by various forms of constitutional law where the law rules. Where even the king is under the law. And in the last hundred years, we've experimented with throwing out God and his law, and the result has been moral decay and mass murder and genocide on a level not seen before. And it's because in casting off the law of God, we have declared we will be slaves of sin. In pursuing lawlessness, lawlessness increases. God is giving us what we have demanded. Now here's what God says. The freedom to choose sin is not freedom, it's slavery. There are only two masters, there are only two rules, there are only two reigns. In verse 15 he says you're either under law or you're under grace. We think of ourselves as being absolutely independent and autonomous, but Paul says no, we're all under someone or something, period. No exceptions. We're under law, which places us all under judgment, or we're under grace. And we're free from the condemnation of the law. But you have a master. You are loyal to your master. You are a slave of your master. If you're under the law, you're under sin. That means you bear the guilt and condemnation that comes from your inability to keep God's law perfectly. You bear that weight. So your life is then ruled by your inability to obey God's law. It's ruled by your inability to deal with your guilty conscience before God. It's ruled by your fear of death and judgment, what you know is hanging over your head. There are a thousand ways we try to deal with and cope with that kind of guilt, with that fear, with that shame. You may be focused on your work and on your achievements and on your success. But that just makes you a slave to success. If I can only attain enough success, I'll be free. I'll prove myself. I'll rise above my feeling of guilt and inadequacy. I'll prove that I'm beyond judgment. You're a slave. You may be focused on your relationships. If I can only get the approval of my dad or my mom, my husband or my wife, if I can just get married, if I can just get my wife to respect me, if I can just get my husband to love me, if I can just go through life getting as many women to respect me or as many men to love me as possible, if I can just fill it up, maybe that feeling of inadequacy will be met. And I won't feel like I I don't measure up anymore. You're a slave. You may be focused on your comfort if I can only arrange my life in such a way that I have maximum comfort and pleasure, if only I can remove all possible inconveniences, if only I can get through life without the hassle of consequences, without the pain of the curse, without the nagging reminder that all of my actions, in fact, do have consequences, and I will answer for them to God, if only I can get rid of that idea, then I'll be free. You're a slave. You may be focused on becoming a righteous person, a better person, but you're driven by a need to measure up, to prove your worth, to earn your place in God's kingdom. You're still driven by guilt and fear. You're a slave. That fear and guilt may be directed at money or wealth or success or status or power or relationships or even righteousness, but it's all driven by a nagging sense that you don't measure up, that you are guilty, that you deserve judgment, and that you somehow have to compensate for it and prove that that's not true. And here's what God is saying. If God is not your Lord and master, sin will be. And you can trade your sins for all kinds of other sins, but it's still sin. It may take the form of one big tyrant in your life that looks really good on paper. Or a million little tyrants that just rule your life. But you're a slave. And as long as you're a slave of sin, you're under law and judgment. But if God is your master, you're under grace. And that's what we've kept seeing over the past couple of weeks. He keeps talking about you're under grace, the reign of grace. Your old life has been crucified. You're now alive to God. You're no longer under sin, but under grace. So if God is your master, you're under grace. And there's a freedom there that only the Christian can know. Because you're free from the guilt and condemnation of sin. You're free from God's judgment. You're free from death and hell. You don't have to work for anyone's approval anymore. You have the approval and love of God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. He is your father in heaven and he loves you. Not because of anything that you've done. So you're free. You're free to live from his approval. You're free to live from his pleasure. Free to live in his love. Free from sin, free from fear. Free to live righteously. Not because you have something to prove, but because you love your father in heaven and you know that he loves you. And you know that his commands are good. You know that they're for your good. You know that God is for you. So who can be against you? Your Father in heaven is on your side. If you're under sin, God's law is your judge. If you're under grace, God's law is your guide. It's not your enemy, it's your friend. It shows you your sin which helps you see his grace and his goodness. And it guides you into righteous living, into what's right and good and true and what pleases your Father in heaven. It's there to correct you. Not to get ahead of ourselves, but when Paul wraps up this argument that we have been making throughout chapter 6 and we will continue making throughout chapter 7, he comes in Romans 8, verse 1 to this. This is what it's all building towards. This is the summary. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. So here's what you absolutely must believe. If you will repent... And submit your life to Jesus as your Lord and Master. He will take better care of you than you can take care of yourself. You have to believe and trust that God's ways are better than your ways. God's law is better than your own law. God loves you better than you could love yourself. God loves your family better than you can love your family. God loves your wife better than you can love your wife, your husband, your kids. So stop fighting with God. Stop being a slave to sin. Stop living under the tyranny of sin and death. Stop living under the condemnation of the law. Come to Jesus and live under what Scripture calls the reign of grace. Here's what happens when you do that. You still go to work. You still make money, you still work for healthy and strong relationships, you still enjoy the comforts and pleasures of this life, but instead of being driven by fear and guilt and a sense of inadequacy, you're free to pursue those as good gifts from your Father in heaven who loves you. You don't have to be ruled or tyrannized by any one of them. All of them good relationships, good things. Wonderful, wonderful servants, terrible masters. And you find joy and peace and life in all of the things that once terrified you. And obeying God's commands doesn't seem as impossible as it once did, or as painful, or as like some kind of drudge that you hate because they're good. It really is better to be faithful to one man or to one woman. It really is better to love your wife. It really is better to respect and honor your husband. It really is better to obey your parents. It really is better to set aside, as Paul tells the Galatians, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. He says, I warn you as I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And instead, set those aside, and instead pursue the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Dead. Gone. Under the reign of God's grace, with God as our master, we become slaves of righteousness. And in that lies true freedom. Because we're loved. And the love that God pours into our hearts through Jesus overflows in love to others. It's why we at this church are not afraid to stare down the hardest parts of the Bible and the scariest parts, the most intense and difficult parts, the ones that hold up the mirror and show us just how bad we are. We spent months just talking about sin and depravity. Why do we not have to be afraid to do that? because that mirror was made by the God who loves us, who holds it up to us for our good. And because if we do belong to Jesus and we do live under the reign of God's grace, it doesn't have the power to condemn us. It helps us see the greatness of his grace and mercy, that he loves us and we are every bit as bad as he says. And then it helps us see what we need to change so we can repent, so that we can grow, so that we can become more like Jesus, so that we can become more like our Father in heaven. We see what we're saved from and what we're saved to. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you're slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness? Who do you obey? Who are you trying to please? Who are you afraid of? What are you conforming yourself to? What sins rule your life? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness." I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Here's what he's saying. If you're a Christian, you have been set free from sin. You have become slaves of righteousness. But you have to live like that's true. You have to live like it's true. The whole metaphor of slavery, he says, is to help us see that we have an old master that we were born into and we have a new master. And that old master still wants us under his thumb. So here's the question. If you belong to Jesus, are you living free? Are you living as if you're free from sin? Or are you continuing to act as if sin is your master? Sin like all tyrants, is a gaslighting monster. Satan is the father of lies. He will have you believing that you're still a slave to sin and he will have you living like a slave to sin in a heartbeat unless you arm yourself with the truth of Scripture, unless you embrace by God's Spirit the freedom that Jesus purchased for you by his blood. And here's the problem. We all have our whole lives behind us, right? So far, we haven't lived into the future yet. We have a lifetime, whatever our lifetime is, whether you're seven years old or 47 or 67, you have a life behind you, you have your personality, you have your sins, you have your struggles, you have your copes that you dealt with and that you used to get through your entire life up until now. You have been a slave of sin. Freedom doesn't sit well with us. It's not comfortable. Freedom carries more weight. Freedom carries responsibility. It's easier to go back to our chains. It's easier to kind of feel powerless. It's comfortable to just feel bad about our sin and stop there. We're sort of like, do you know the analogy that, of how they train elephants? I don't even know if it's true. I think it's true. Do you know? When elephants are a baby, they have these like chains with spikes on them, right? That they wrap around their legs. And whenever they go, they move against the chain. They're tied up. Spikes drive into their legs, and it's heavy and it, it, it messes with them. And then, when they get older, when they grow, all you need to put around the elephant is a, a little rope, tie it to a peg, and stick it into the ground. As soon as he feels the tension, he stops. He has that visceral muscle memory of the pain of that chain. And he has no idea that he's powerful enough to just keep walking and break the rope but pull the peg out of the ground. That's what we are like when it comes to our sins. We've been so conditioned by the pain that we become incapable of realizing the power and freedom that's ours in Christ. All we have to do is be reminded of the pain we shackle ourselves right back up. Sin is a tyrant and a liar. Satan is a liar and the father of lies. He will use every failure you've ever had as proof that you're not capable of changing. He will tell you that hope is foolish and glib. He will tell you that hope in the power of God to transform your life is for happy, clappy losers who hop on their private jets and fly to their orthodontist appointments. It's been a while since that joke came up. That's what he'll tell you. You can't make real progress against sin, not really. You can't really change. There's no real hope. Stop there. Stop. Yeah, there's no hope for you, David. It was a Joel Osteen joke. I know, it took a Yeah. He'll tell you that it's Joel Osteen nonsense. The idea that God means to change you, that He doesn't just want to save you from guilt and condemnation, but He wants to transform your life, that you will be sanctified. He'll tell you that's for the happy, clappy idiots out there. That's what He'll tell you. And everything, every failure, everything that just feels like you can't, that you've never been able to get past, He'll throw it in your face and say, You can't change. God doesn't love you. He's not on your side. The Holy Spirit's not actually powerful enough to transform you. Stop right there. Just feel bad. Doesn't it feel good to feel bad? In fact, feel bad and feel superior to everybody else who's stupid enough to believe that you can actually change. They don't take sin seriously. Look at them running around with their empty hope and their stupid idea that God actually wants to change them. And a lump, everybody who believes what God says here in this passage in with the gelosians of this world. And it's a lie. We can be realistic about sin, we can be realistic about the struggle. We can be realistic about how hard it is to live in light of what God says without denying the truth that if the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. And that he came so that you would no longer be slaves to sin, but slaves to righteousness. That he means to transform your life. That he does not mean to say, oh, forgiven, now keep sinning, No help, no hope, nothing for you until you die. That's not God. God saves you from the condemnation of sin and the power of sin in your life. But you have to believe what he says. You have to believe that the old Jew was crucified and buried, dead. You have to stop going back and living as if you're still a slave to sin. You're not. He came to free you. The blood of Jesus did not just buy your forgiveness. It bought your freedom and your transformation. So stop denying the power of it. We can be realistic about the power of sin in our lives while fighting to believe that we have been crucified with Christ and God's commands that we consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to him. Remember last week. Consider yourself dead to sin and alive to him. That's a command. You must obey it. You have to fight to believe it and you have to fight to obey it. You had better obey that command. You can be realistic about the depth and power of sin while fighting to obey that command. You can be realistic about the depth of sin while embracing the simple truth that there's an answer for it. And the answer is embrace your identity as a son of God who is no longer a slave. So stop acting like a slave. Stop presenting your members. Remember, this is just the simple formula that he said last week. Don't present your members To sin, present them to God as instruments for righteousness. We can acknowledge that it's hard while saying that this is what God says to do, and so this is what I will do. And I will believe and trust that he will conquer the power of sin in my life if I just get this into my head and I keep fighting to not present my members as slaves to sin, as instruments of unrighteousness, but to God my new master, my new Lord, my new king as instruments for righteousness. I will stop living like a slave and I will start living like I'm free. Okay, how do you do that? How do you really start to live like you're free? Where does the rubber meet the road? I'm glad you asked. We all struggle with sin, right? Right? And it's easy when there are certain sins in our lives that make it, uh, it's easy to feel hopeless about them. To feel like I'll never get past this. So I want us to engage in a thought experiment. Some of you have been in marriage counseling with me and Amanda. Um, this is an experiment, a test that I like to, to use. And it's that we, you just imagine, stop and imagine your life Five years from now or ten years from now. Or sometimes I'll say, imagine that you could go to bed tonight and wake up tomorrow and have the perfect marriage. All your problems are solved. What's different? What changes? What sins have been conquered? What, what's different in your marriage? Just imagine it, what would it be like? Some of you are like, I'm imagining that my husband is a completely different person, not the same person that I married even. I know it's true, I've been in counseling with you guys. Some of you ladies now feel attacked It's true your husbands say the same things. Your husband, your wife is not the problem. Sin is the problem. Your own sin is the problem. Your marriage is the problem that you need to band together to fix. What would you like it to look like? What do you imagine a good marriage to be? We wake up every day, we trust that we're for each other, we're on the same page, there's no quarreling, the kids are happy, we do fun things together as a family, we go on dates again. Okay, now what stands in the way of making that happen? What would you like to see change? What's practical? What could you actually change today? What steps could you take? God's given you a picture in the the scriptures, in the Bible, of what a good marriage looks like. That's why you need to read it and study it. He's shown you what your character should be and what your marriage should be. He's given you a picture of what you're aiming for. He's explained it. He's outlined it. He's given you rules and laws and guidelines and description descriptions. He's given you a picture of it in Jesus himself. So here's what you do. You fix your eyes on Jesus. You fix your eyes on righteousness. And you say, okay, how do I get there? How do I get there? You go ahead and you make some diagnoses of yourself. You say, I'm an angry person. I'm a selfish person. I'm a bitter person. And then you start to shift your focus from the problem to the solution. Okay, my marriage isn't where I want it to be. How do I take responsibility for everything that I can? How do I move us toward the goal? And remember this about responsibility. Responsibility is not just some kind of external duty or obligation, weight that you begrudgingly give yourself to. It's ownership. When you own your problems, you can start to work out the solutions. Own them. Here's the thing. Some of you are so fixated on blaming everyone else around you for your problems. You don't even know how to begin to engage in the exercise I'm telling you about. That's your first problem. How do you stop blaming everybody for your problems? Well, why do you have to ask yourself why you do it? Why do you do it? Why do you why are you looking for somebody to blame for everything in your life? Why? Because you're afraid you can't bear the weight of responsibility for your problems? Because you're living under guilt and shame and fear. You're afraid that God's against you. You're afraid that you can't change. You're afraid that you have no ability to influence change in your life. Make it your mission to see your own sin clearly. And to be honest about your sin. Make it your mission to lean into your responsibility for your actions. If your wife doesn't give you the respect that you think you deserve, maybe she's a horrible person. Or maybe you're a bad leader. Or maybe it's both. Probably it's both, but what can you do? You can take responsibility for yourself. If you're single, maybe all the boys are stupid. Or maybe all the girls are stupid maybe you're just not the kind of person that anybody wants to marry just yet. And you gotta work on that. You gotta figure that out. I don't wanna hear that. Sit down and be humble. Sit down and be humble. And then come to God and trust what he says. He actually does love you. He does. He actually does want what's best for you. He does. Train yourself to see that and to believe it and to trust it because that's what he says. He wants to change you. He means to change you. Come to him first thing in the morning and fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on the cross what Augustine calls the pulpit of God's love. Train yourself to see it. God's not your dad who abused or neglected you. He's not your ex-lover who abandoned you or betrayed you. He's God. Work out from there. I want my marriage to stop being a war zone where we're both fighting each other for what we want. I want us to trust each other and to be free in each other's love. I want the temperature of our home to be warm and friendly. I want the aroma to be sweet and hospitable and kind. Okay, for that to happen, what has to change? Well, you have to stop treating your husband or your wife like the enemy. You have to stop trying to get from them what you can only get from God. You have to stop taking and you have to start giving. You have to find concrete places where you can get better about those things. You have to pray and ask God for help. You just say it out loud. Tell your wife the ways that you intend to change. And ask her to pray for you, ask her to help you. Apologize. Ask for forgiveness. Make it clear that the goal in your home is that you'll be a family that loves and serves the living God, and that loves and is tender with one another. And then do your best to make it happen. Because you don't have to be a slave to sin. And your home doesn't have to live under the tyranny of sin. You can be a slave to righteousness. See the goal, diagnose the problems, reject sin, and walk In righteousness to the best of your ability. Take what you see in Scripture and in the example of others and emulate it. What's the key? Well, the key is a changed heart, a new nature, new desires. You really do have to be born again. Here's the truth. We do what we want. The problem is, by nature, what we want is sin. So if you're here and you're just learning to love the things of God, if you look at Jesus and say, he's just the truth. What he says is the truth. The Bible is the truth. The sin stuff we've been talking about for months makes sense. It makes sense of me. And I want to be done with it. And I want to be free of it. If that's happened, that's because God has done something and God is doing something. He's doing something to change you. As you grow in your relationship with him, you're gonna learn to hate sin. You're gonna learn to love your Savior. And you'll become more and more like him. You'll want to. You'll want to live your life and say, I'm yours. You'll look at your life and you'll say, you know what, left to myself, I made a wreck of this. I'm gonna keep making a wreck of this. I just wanna follow God and walk with Jesus. I wanna grow. I want what Jesus wants for my life. I want what Jesus wants for my marriage. I want what Jesus wants for my kids. I actually do, I actually want that. He loves us better, he knows us better. His ways are better than our ways. And we'll talk in the next chapter. Why do I still do the things I hate if that's what I really want? We'll get to that. But you have to trust that what God says is true. I ask you to imagine what your life would be like in five or 10 years if you could just solve the problems. How many of you look at the difference between here and there and feel like, well, That's impossible. I've just been treading water. I don't see. I don't see growth. I don't see progress. I don't see change. I'm getting nowhere fast. Those of you who have been a Christian for a while, how many of you feel that way? Is it true? Where were you five years ago? Where were you 10 years ago? Where were you 20 years ago? Is it true? Oh, you can't change. God doesn't change people. It's not true, is it? Where were you? What were you doing? Were you married yet? Jeff, you have kids? Do you have hope for that? You were married, what was your marriage like? What was a typical day like for you? Has Jesus changed you? Has he? He has. And I'm telling you as your pastor, We've not celebrated two years as a church. This Easter's two years of having services together. He's changed you. I look at you people and you are not the same as you were a year ago. You're not the same as you were just a couple months ago, some of you. Listen, I love you and you have to believe and understand that that's true. You don't see it because you continue to grow and as you continue to grow, you continue to see your sin, which is good, it's right. But you also need to step back and see that God has changed you. And just like we talked about last, actually it wasn't last week, I keep saying last week, I wasn't preaching last week, last time I preached. Or no, a couple times ago. As we suffer, we endure. As we endure, it builds character. As God builds our character, that builds hope. Has God changed you? Then you have hope. For the next five years, the next 10 years. But let's start small. How about for tomorrow and the next day? and the next day. Homestretch. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. We, were all, we all started as slaves, we're bored into it, right? But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you're now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. The things you used to be proud of, you're now ashamed of. It's called college. I got so drunk last night. Ha 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 ha. It's called work. Y'all been there? We love to celebrate our sin. It's our pride, it's our glory. God says, No, it's your shame. It's your shame. The reason you're so loud about it is because you're trying to drown your conscience and it's telling you it's your shame. The reason you're looking around, uh, demanding everybody else celebrate your sin, because you think if you rally enough people, you'll be able to silence the witness of heaven and the witness of your conscience that says, no, it's evil, it's sin, it ends in death. It's your shame, we have to keep moving. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Okay, there are two kinds of people. Some of you are slaves, but you think you're free. You do what you want, but all you want is sin. Sin is your master and sin leads to death and judgment and hell. And you are as close to heaven as you will ever get. Every breath pushes you farther and farther away. And then you die. And the time of grace and mercy is over and all that's left is judgment. You're slaves but you think you're free and what you need is to be set free. Jesus came to set you free so come to him. Some of you are free but you are constantly tempted to think you're still a slave. Jesus has set you free but you live regularly under the tyranny of your old master as if sin is still your master, as if the law reigns in your life as if it's part of you, as if it's who you are. And Jesus says it's who you were. There's a story in Scripture that tells us how this works. It's called the Exodus. Y'all know the story? God shows up in power. His people are slaves under the serpent king. Curses, amazing things happen, plagues, parting of the Red Sea, pillar of fire, cloud by day, fire by night, manna from heaven, miracle upon miracle upon miracle. And what do the people want? What do the people do? How do they live? It's scary going out into the wilderness. It's scary going out into freedom. If we could just get back to Egypt if we could just get back to comfort, the comfort of our bonds, of slavery. That's how you live. Longing, longing, longing for Egypt. Don't live that way. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You get wages or you get a gift. You have law, you have grace. If you're under the law, if sin is your master, you're going to get your slave wages. You're going to get them. Here's what you've earned. Death. If Jesus is your master, there are no wages. The only wages you can earn are death. You get grace. And it's a gift eternal life. Jesus paid the debt. He paid it all. He took on himself the wages of sin. He took on death. He paid for it on the cross. He was crucified, dead, and buried. And then three days later, he got up, he set aside his grave clothes, and he walked forth from the tomb in life. And that life is yours. He holds that life out to you now. He came to set the captives free, Scripture says. And here's the truth. So I'm telling you to come to Jesus. Come and be set free. And here's what I'm also saying. If you come to Jesus, it's because you've been set free. If you come to Jesus, it's, become, it's because your chains have been broken. It's because he raised you from the dead and called you out of the tomb. It's like he called Lazarus out of the tomb. If you come to Jesus, it's because he's paid for it all, including the cost of your new life. So come to Jesus and be set free because the one the son sets free is free indeed. There is freedom. Freedom from your guilt and condemnation. Freedom from the power of sin in your life, the rule and reign of sin in your life. And one day, eventually, freedom from the presence of sin. And we'll be done with it all. Remember the words, the terms? Justification, sanctification, glorification. You have been saved. You will be saved. You are being saved. They all go together. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the freedom that we have in Christ. I pray this morning that those of us here who live as slaves would trust your word and would find that freedom. that we would learn to present ourselves as slaves to you, as slaves to righteousness. Help us, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.